Hello and welcome to At The Source. I'm Alex and this is Karis. This is a podcast about food stories. We love talking about food and eating it. So we wanted to talk to fellow food lovers and record their stories. We're having conversations with everyone from home cooks to food producers and restaurateurs. So why not join us as we explore food in all its glory? Welcome to At The Source. Today's guest is Martha Roberts. In 2012, two weeks after moving to Wales, Martha went to the Abergavenny Food Festival and it changed her life. Six years later, she's a smallholder rearing free-range rare-breed pork in the Brecon Beacons National Park. I was scrolling through Twitter one day and a tweet about her story came across my feed and I just had to find out more. Martha's story resonates with us both because we also fell in love with the magic of Abergavenny Food Festival. In fact, it was there that we decided to start this podcast and two years on, <laughs> we're finally doing it. So welcome, Martha. Thank you for having us. You're welcome. And thank you for having us on this beautiful farm. We've already met the piggies. <laughs> which was have the photos to prove it and there may or may not be one going home in the <laughs> one in each pocket who's going to miss yeah. them eh? <laughs> your, your story is really interesting I think because you're going from a life of computers and offices to a life of pigs and a small holding and farm with land and mm-hmm. and actually you're doing both which blows my mind where, where did that start what is your first memory of food well I have a couple of early memories of food and none of them are particularly early as in when I was a very small child but my mum was always very interested in food and always there was always an interest in food in my house but she was a working mum and one of her areas of work was that she worked with uh, refugees I grew up in Sheffield and there were lots of refugees coming into the city at that stage because there was work and she taught English as a foreign language to people and that was mostly to um, communities from South Asia and the Indian subcontinent. And as part of that, she used to get given loads of food as gifts uh, for her teaching. And she used to arrive home with these towers of Tupperware. And every time she did it, we would all crowd around the door because we knew that we were in for a treat. And it was usually delicious, savoury and sweet things, for that matter, that would arrive home. And she'd be unpacking and the smells would be really fabulous. And in suburban Sheffield, that was quite unusual, I think, probably. But so I have very strong memories of Indian and Pakistani food when I was small and the, the smells kind of invading the kitchen. And the other one that springs to mind is... But when I was probably about 10, we used to go on holiday to Portugal, to a tiny little fishing village. And I remember getting a dish. Actually, my dad ordered the dish and I then took it over pretty much. <laughs> and it was a dish called cataplana, which arrives in this, this sort of metal pod of two halves. And when they open the pod, the steam rushes out and it's essentially a tomato. I might be doing a service here, but it, it's a tomato kind of stew with seafood in Mm. with mussels and squid and prawns and all of that kind of thing and I remember sitting there with like covered in steam when they the the drama of them opening the metal pod and then discovering seafood and thinking I love seafood I absolutely love it and my parents being slightly baffled by the fact that I was (laughs) so into seafood at age 10 and that's continued to this day actually I still really love seafood but I have one of those magic food memories of just thinking this is so bonkers exotic there's this kind of metal pod appeared in front of me and they open it in this kind of big moment the drama and yeah exactly it's kind of food as theatre and thinking that that was amazing so those two are the two that probably stand out the most I like the um the idea of your mum coming home with the Tupperwares of all the food I went to Union Sheffield, actually. Aha, uh-huh, okay. And 
yeah, I guess that it was quite unusual for you to be kind of trying those foods so young. Yeah, and they, they used, and they used to, the other thing it was, we used to get invited to their weddings all the time. And that was an absolute hoot because you'd arrive and the whole focus of the whole events, as far as I can recall, was food. So there would just be these enormous tables of food, oh. endless food, that they would then give you more Tupperware to take home with you from the <laughs> wedding. So yes, I, I have very strong memories of, of Indian and Pakistani food. And my mum went trekking around India as a, as a group in a group of women, actually, which I guess was also unusual in the 1980s. And and so her interest in that was then permeated through her cooking after that. So a lot of her cooking, even now, has those kind of influences attached to it. So you're from Sheffield. Yes. And you now live just outside Abergavenny. I do. And you now raise pigs, but obviously you grew <laughs> up in a city. So yeah. you mentioned on your website that your grandparents had a farm in the Brecon Beacons, which is yep. around where we are now. Exactly where um, we are, yes. And is that the kind of... Was it that... Was that the reason that you chose Wales? So when I was a child, I used to come here because my grandparents had a farm here and I loved it. And my grandparents didn't farm from the, the off, although my grandmother's family all had farming connections. But her father, as he would have termed it, escaped farming and, and um, ran a small business and made a decent living out of that. And my grandmother wasn't involved in farming either. But after the war, she married an American GI oh. and who was based over here during the war. And they then, um, when I, just the year I was born actually, took on this farm, the farm that we're sitting on now. And I used to come here as a child and so my grandparents were learning about farming at the same time as I was kind of small and my grandfather was a bit of a hero to me I used to follow him around everywhere copy everything he did be his shadow I must have in hindsight I must have driven him mad <laughs> but I used to sit alongside him in the tractor and I used to obsess about you know getting involved in everything from lambing and all gunk and blood and mud and all of that kind of thing and used to go home to my school in Sheffield and describe what I'd been doing you know what did you do during the holidays and at one point they were so concerned they rang my mother and said <laughs> I was telling the story about how if uh, if you're trying to uh, adopt a uh, a lamb, an orphan lamb, onto another ewe who's lost her lamb. You skin the dead lamb, you put it on as a jacket, it gets them to smell the same and it's the brilliant way of adopting or putting together a, a, a lamb who's lost their mother and a mother who's lost their lamb. Anyway, I was describing this at my suburban Sheffield <laughs> school. That went down really well. And they phoned my mother and said, Martha's saying some slightly disturbing Ooh. things. But that was, that was what I loved and I used to love being here. And so all of that aside, you know, I grew up, I went off, I got an office job. I did all of that for a while. And then in my late 30s, my office job, which I'd loved for a long time, I just thought, actually, I'm not sure... I'm not sure that this is enough mm. anymore. And I didn't want children. And I desperately felt like I needed something that I could put my hands on and say, this is mine. This is what I do. This is what I produce. Something tangible, not emails, not those kind of things, but actually something um, that I could touch and feel and point to and build, actually. So my idea was that I wanted to have a small holding and um, at that point my grandparents were getting quite infirm and so I, I cut a deal to come back here with them and just take on a little bit of land and try growing some stuff. That was the plan. But I came back here because the only place I've ever felt truly connected to was here and that goes back to probably seminal influences in childhood mm. where I just felt a sense of freedom and connection and all of those things which I'd never felt anywhere else I'd lived, including Sheffield, where I grew up for 20 years. So I came back here and and almost instantaneously felt like I belonged here. And I still feel like now. It's partly the landscape, it's partly the people, but it's partly something undiscernible that you can't quite put your finger on that just feels 
like I when I round the bend and come back through Raglan, which is about 15 minutes from here, and I see Raglan Castle on my right and the big opening expanse of sky, and I think, whatever the weather, oof, nearly home. And it's the only place I've ever felt like that about, and I've lived all over the place. So, yeah, it was a very strong draw to come back here, partly because of my family connections, but more because I sort of thought that that was the only place I might like to be, mm-hmm. and it was a bit of a punt, to be honest. And so that brings us to 2012, doesn't it, really? Mm. And so you moved here, and yes. then you went to the Abergavenny Food Festival. What was it that made you think, okay, I'm living here now. Actually, I'm going to do what I've been thinking about doing and I'm going to get some pigs. So I'd come here thinking I'd quite like to grow some things, but no more grand ambition than that. There was no there was no grand plan other than I'd like to grow some things because I think that might satisfy my need to, to do something additional to my day job. Um, and I'd long been interested in food and I'd read a lot about it and I'd thought a lot about it. Although that said, in my 20s, I was your average junk food you know, person who didn't really think a lot about anything other than, you know, going out and drinking too much and not eating good food. <laughs> so it, I, I am by no means a pious character in that department. But I, I went to the food festival and I'd been a couple of years previously just as a punter just as you know buying stuff that kind of thing but in 2012 I went there and I thought I'm in a new place I've got no responsibilities other than to if I want to spend two full days there and so I booked to go to a whole bunch of the talks that were on that year and they included people like Jekka McVicker who runs the herb place yeah and um, a woman called Carolyn Steele who wrote a book about how cities were shaped around the movement and importation of food and how all of Mm. cities became as they were and how all of the names connect and, and numerous other people actually that I went and sat and listened to and it was just one of those couple of days which I just felt like I was drinking in all kinds of different things um, with a bit of a different mindset because I'd moved to a different place and there were lots of possibilities. But also I had a very strong sense that when I was there that I wanted to be part of that community, whatever that community was. And a year earlier, I'd gone and done a week-long cookery course in Ashburton School in Devon, thinking maybe I want to cook for a living. And I, I did a five-day course there. And I thought, well, it's okay and it's great and I'm learning stuff and, yeah, that's fine. And then on the fourth day, they had what they called a producer day where they invited in producers to talk about what they did. And I sat there through the whole day and I thought, oh, this is <laughs> this is more me, actually. This is kind of what I'd like to do. So I had that in the back of my head. Mm. And, yeah, and, and I just wanted to be part of the food community or more involved with food. And that couple of days at ABBA Festival made me think actually I could grow things to eat and I could see where that leads and the plan had always been to get a couple of pigs to raise them for the freezer just because I thought that would be an interesting thing to do and so yeah that's what I started doing but it was more about self-sufficiency and just finding a different balance in my life than it was about some kind of grand mad pig takeover plan. So you started with three pigs. I did. And then then came the mad grand plan where you now have... No, still not a grand plan, to be honest. So kept getting a few more. And... It, they're sort of a bit addictive, <laughs> I think. So I had the three and, and I had a really lovely time with them. They were great first pigs, actually. They gave me no problems whatsoever. Lulled massively into a false sense of security. <laughs> and, uh, and the meat was great. And I felt really good about the fact that I'd done that and that that had been something I'd accomplished and um, and I had a beautiful veg garden that year because I only had three pigs. It was an amazing <laughs> veg garden, beautiful, crafted, tidy. And, is that uh, the leftovers down there Yes, now? it is. That you just all the piglets traipsing through. Yeah, they're, they're fertilising, that's my argument. Um, and then I thought, well, I want more pigs. 
And there wasn't really a sense of me that saying, is it sensible to get three more pigs? What are you going to do with them? I got them anyway. And then they were the, they were the ones that escaped. And I chased around the valleys for two weeks looking after oh, them um, because they went on tour the first night I got them. So they didn't really know where home was. And they were also a bit wild. Um, and they disappeared for two weeks, kept getting the odd sighting. By the time you got there, they'd gone. Two weeks later, they turned up at my neighbour's house, a Welsh farmer down the road from me, who was not madly amused by the fact they ate three of his ducklings. <gasps> yeah, exactly. Uh, and so wow. <laughs> they'd got a bit peckish. I mean, luckily they escaped in the autumn and there's lots of forage available in the autumn, but they'd obviously run out of options by two weeks. So he found them having eaten three of his ducklings, snoring in a haystack. And we <laughs> then... Party night. In the yeah, film. exactly. Yeah, exactly. Three drunks in a haystack. Um, and we then had to bundle them into big puppy crates and bring them back here. And then I reared them on. And I actually kept the girl out of the three, um, who is Madge, who you met earlier, my Mangalitsa. And from there, I started to think, actually, I'd really like to, you know, have a go at breeding. Still with no kind of, you know, sensible business plan or anything. Um, so, and that's what I did. And slowly but surely, I kind of built uh, an accidental pig empire. Um, yeah. <laughs> can you tell us about the learning curve of rearing pigs? Because I'm thinking that it's not just, oh, put some fencing up and chuck some food over the fence and they'll be okay. I feel like that's not all there is to it. No, although it can be as simple as that on a good day. Fencing is um, a challenge because fencing to pigs is a mere guideline. Uh, rather than something that naturally holds them in. Um, so I use stock fencing and I use electric. Electric is, when it works, actually very effective at managing pigs. But learning curve-wise, so all I'd done was read some books. And and then I went on a one-day pig-keeping course, because uh, that would be sufficient, obviously. Uh, and, and then I got to, in my kind of midlife crisis, I decided that I would just try some stuff. And if it didn't work, I would stop trying to you know, pretend that you should be perfect at everything from the minute you start it. So I decided that I'd just try it and learn as I went. And actually, in the main, that's worked okay, albeit I've built a sort of network of contacts of people who, if I encounter something I'm not sure about, I go, have you ever had this? Which is usually to do with illness or injury or that kind of thing. But, I mean, it's a massive learning curve because you're suddenly thrown into a world of, Okay, so food and water and fencing is one thing, but actually behaviourally you have to get used to mm. what, what pigs are like um, and what normal looks like so that you know what abnormal mm. is and then what to do about that kind of thing. So the biggest learning curve has has been around you having to learn a huge amount of patience. Pigs do not do things they do not want to do. And you can shout and yell and stomp around and get frustrated with them and it will do you not a jot of good. And in the corporate world, you know, you work on processes and rules and guidelines and control. Everything's about control, isn't it? With pigs, they actually don't really work by that rule book. So you have to become a, a much more placid person about it, which is a challenge for me, actually. Uh, but yeah, they, learning curve wise, you're always learning with them. <clears throat> you know, I was talking to you earlier about an animal that got ill before the food festival. And, you know, that's really testing, actually, because when you don't really know what's wrong and you're desperately trying to figure out what's wrong and you're trying to treat them. So, I mean, the basics learning curve, you have to learn how to administer meds to pigs. So, you know, it'd be great if you could just 
give them, you know, <laughs> something in their food that would suddenly make them better. But odds on, if they're ill, they're not eating. So then you're into the realm of injections. You have to learn how to inject a pig and get past your, what, what was my, definitely, fear of, oh, my God, I've got to stick a needle into a pretty large animal who's not going to like me very much for it. So there's lots of tiny bits of learning along the way. But in truth, that's been the fascinating bit. I mean, some of it's really, really difficult along the way. When you lose an animal, that's really tough, actually, because it's difficult to not think that you failed in some respect. That's the reason why. Yeah, but you have to get to a place where you appreciate and remind yourself, and I have to remind myself of it, is that farming, you know, you you can't control everything. You can't Mm. control the weather. You can't always control animals getting sick or dying. You have to do what you can do. You have to learn as you go. And if if you can avoid it happening again, great, but sometimes you can't. And, And so you have to get much more philosophical about that kind of thing, which is an interesting contrast to the corporate... Mm. world so your small holding is called the decent company it is which we love and that kind of really is your ethos Mm. so your pigs are ethically reared and they're free to root and roam as as you say but it sounds from what you're saying is that there was never a question in your mind that you would go down the route of doing things less ethically in order to make more money or no you know i think it's the one thing that we've loved about all the people we've spoken to is that it's actually about the animals and the quality of what you put in and what you get out and not just about kind of yeah throw i don't know what i'm trying to say you know just well it's not it's farming i think if if you ask most farmers at their core it's it's not just about a business whatever methods they're using to rear animals and i have very strong views about what the big dominant food systems do to farmers and how that shapes how farmers rear animals or um, uh, grow crops and harvest them and I think that farmers of all kinds of shapes and sizes really battle with some of that because their lack of control over the way in which stuff gets marketed and sold Mm. on Mm -hmm. is really difficult I mean I have the luxury of having got into this with a corporate job behind me which means that I don't have to borrow huge amounts of money to do what I did to start with that's a huge privilege and not one that is afforded to everybody um was there any question about me doing anything differently no not really mainly because I didn't start off with a business in mind um and once you've seen pigs outdoors and the way that they live outdoors and behave it's it it became inconceivable to me that I could keep them any other way and and also the learning for me that I didn't necessarily expect but has definitely happened is that there is definitely a market for what I'm doing and I'm tiny in scale you know there are people who have much bigger operations similar to mine all over the world but mine is a small scale operation and I quite like it being small scale but again I have the luxury of not depending on it as a sole income Mm. but the decent company is also because what I recognised as I was about to hit 40 was that I didn't have any balance in my life my life was all about my day job which for a long time was absolutely fine but I got to a stage where it wasn't fine anymore and I needed something to balance out that. And and so I wanted a decent life for me. I wanted a decent life for the animals I kept. I wanted to be able to provide decent products to people to buy ultimately and, and that people would be able to buy it and feel good about what they were buying and not there not be any tomfoolery about what I was mm-hmm. doing so that it was all very... I hate the word transparent because it's been massively overused by politicians mainly now, but... Yeah. but that, that people would be able to have a window into my world and make their own decisions. And, and that includes people who watch what I do, comment on what I do, and don't eat any meat at all. I have no issue with that at all because 
I'm not trying to hide any aspect of, of what I do. Something that we discussed earlier. Sorry, Caris, I know I'm like hogging. Oh, <laughs> I, it did not even do that on purpose. Um, I'm hogging the conversation. But when we met the piglets earlier, we were talking about the fact that you it is a small holding and you do get connected to the pigs. And a lot yep. of them have got names, lovely names. Um, yeah, the breeding stock all have names. Yeah. And with the piglets, you know, they're so incredibly cute. And you've got mm. 14, did you say? 18, 18 at the moment. Down the there. little ones, yeah. They will be raised and they will go to slaughter. Yes. And that you and I were saying earlier it's actually really important that you that you have that bond and you do spend time with them and then you are aware of what happens and that's where yes. meat comes from and um, you appreciate where it comes from and you're not desensitized like absolutely. most of us are because there are so many people out there who just go meat comes in a packet from a yeah. fridge but they're incredibly yeah. cute those piglets but you know I love pork and I'm yeah. glad that I've come here today and seen them and they're, they're gorgeous and I've taken a thousand photos <laughs> we'll, yeah. we'll put onto the website but ultimately they're they're here for that purpose well yeah what i ultimately what i am is an honest meat eater and i have Mm. a a little meat operation going on here and part of um you could call it a paradox or contradiction or 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 in terms where i you know i will do anything i can to care for my animals whilst they're with me and that includes everything from the moment they come into this world to making sure that they go to an abattoir which is close by which is a luxury again now um and that they are not stressed and that they're familiar with trailers and all of that kind of thing on on the, at the end of their life. Part of when people have said to me, how can you get connected to them and then do that? Actually, part of the joy is the connection with them. What I didn't set out to do was have this kind of very straightforward business operation. I set out to have a different life for me too. And actually being smaller in scale and spending time with animals like this is a huge joy. Um, on an almost daily basis. I mean, there are days where you think I've had enough, but but mostly it's a joy. And and I think if all of us thought a little bit more without trying to be condescending about where our food came from, yeah. we would probably be willing to pay a bit more for it. Um, yeah. We would probably waste less of it. Yeah, I absolutely. think we've all become a little bit entitled to mm. food at ridiculous prices, which cripple farmers. They knacker the environment. They mm-hmm. do untold damage to animals and animal welfare. And it doesn't have to be that way, I don't think. So I would hope that I'm part of a little band of warriors who are saying, actually, maybe maybe we can subvert the, yeah. the dominant system a little bit and maybe more will join us and maybe we can rethink the way that food systems work at the moment because I'm not sure that what we have now is in any way acceptable. Absolutely, mm. I totally agree. Um, on a sort of lighter note, I was curious as to why... <laughs> you chose the breed of pigs that you chose ah yes well so when i set out with my grand plan which we've already established i didn't have but one of the things i did think about was what kind of pigs i wanted and uh, so i decided in the early days pre-coming here that i wanted a breed called oxford sandy and black which you'll have seen some of the piglets that i pointed out look very much like that um and i, I decided that based on my reading uh, which, uh, which was obviously massively useful. Uh, that's one thing. When, this is the real thing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and then I went, and then when I arrived here, and I was looking around for being able to buy weaners, which are kind of eight, ten week old um, uh, pigs that have been weaned from their mother, and then you take them from that weight through to pork weight, about six or seven months. And actually, there weren't any Oxford Sandy and Blacks around. In fact, the only piglets I could get hold of at that stage were, were crossbreeds. But that was fine. And I thought, well, actually, that's fine because I'll just start. I was just trying it out. Um, and and then I had Bangalitsis as we've established and then when I thought about breeding I thought actually 
what, let's have a look around what breeding stock was available. Because I didn't have a stock bull, I wanted to buy what's called a gilt, a young female, already pregnant. And I found a woman up in Ledbury near me, about an hour from here, who bred Gloucester Old Spots. And she said, I've got a lovely natured Gloucester Old Spot um, gilt called Nancy. Uh, I can't keep her because she's connected to the, the boar I have. She would be a great starter pig for you. So she came to me in pig and I pretty much fell in love on the spot with old spots as a result. When she farrowed and I had no point of reference, you know, I'd got a maternity kit gathered. I was prepped. I'd read the books. I had towels. I had hot water, the works uh, and no experience. And uh, she was I sat on the floor with her as she farrowed. I didn't realise this wasn't, you know, necessarily how it goes. I just got a strong sense that, that would be OK. So I watched her piglets come into the world and um and dealt with the fact that there was one stillborn and that kind of thing and i thought i just love them they're so placid and they're so fine with you being around and part of it's handling but part of it's also the nature of the breed and they're great mothers and so yeah then i went down the route of saying i just love old spots actually and i've got a couple of other the odd breeding south of the um breeds but old spots are I mean, as you've seen, when they're youngsters, they're cute as hell, um, mm-hmm. like little spotty bundles. And they grow up to be really placid animals who roll over for a belly rub and will kind of wander along behind you. And they're not generally troublesome. Like a very large dog. Yes. Yeah. And wagging their tails, whisking yes. their tails when they're Yes, happy. they twirl their tails around, they do. Yes. And you use Twitter a lot and we'll link to your um, Twitter account and your website in our show notes. We love seeing the pigs. We, <laughs> even even the, the big ones, you think, oh, they're not as cute, but we love seeing all of them. And, you know, we like seeing the life that you leave as a farmer. I laughed when you put up those um, parody photos of... Um, oh, um, Harry Styles yeah, holding was, lambs in some kind of Vogue <laughs> shots. I know. Oh, just thought, blimey, oh. that, that, if only that were the case. Uh, mauve trousers on a farm, not so much. <laughs> is, that, is that where you get most of your meat orders is that how you've met a lot of people or yeah twitter's been twitter's been a fabulous experience for me actually it gets quite a bad rap i know in lots of in lots of ways and maybe deservedly so but i again i started using twitter because in my old corporate job i used to manage it for my old job uh so i had an account quite early on which is my name um because i joined so early uh and then i when nancy my first old spot south farrowed i started sharing pictures not with the expectation that anybody would be particularly interested but just because it kind of made me feel slightly less isolated because I was doing it on my own and then I started to get little bits of feedback and then I got contact from a couple of other small-scale pig farmers mostly women who were doing similar stuff and then it just sort of grew from there and then I started to get people ask me where they could buy meat from me um and that was part of the ultimately of the how I then developed the business was because I sensed that there was a demand there potentially albeit a small one at that point and it's just grown from there and I think because most of my posts are very visual you know I live in a beautiful place there's no getting away from that and the animals are very photogenic but I I think people connect with that but they also surprisingly for me at first look at that and say I'd quite like to buy from a farmer like Martha And, and that's interesting and I think that my in terms of my order ratio about 65% ish comes from twitter what i love wow. most about that is the fact that it comes back to your original thoughts around the decent yeah. this decent meat and yeah. people are watching those videos of cute piglets yes. and pigs rolling around and still thinking 
I'd like to eat that meat because yes. those pigs are having such a, a lovely life. Yeah. And it does yeah. come full circle, doesn't it? And it's people buying into what I'm doing, which yeah. is very validating. And sometimes it's hard when you've got a reasonable size Twitter following. I mean, yeah, in the in the relative terms, obviously, I'm not Kim Kardashian. Is that you sort of understand that people are kind of gunning gunning for you in a positive sense as in they really want things to work out for you mm. it then becomes quite difficult if you've got an, a sick animal or that kind of thing because people want to talk about that and sometimes you just want to go yeah I've just got to try and get through the next 24 hours and keep them alive but ultimately it's a hugely positive thing not not just in business terms but in connections terms i've got lots of people i now know of and have met in real life who I met through the medium of Twitter. And I like it far better than the other social media platforms, actually, in terms of rapid-fire engagement and being able agree. to show video yeah, and things agree. like that. But, it's it, yeah, it, I really enjoy the interaction on Twitter and I enjoy the fact that people will then ask me questions and challenge me or say, I don't like what you're doing and how can you do that? And I'm perfectly happy to answer those kind of questions. The only time I don't engage is if somebody comes after you with a very clear agenda of attack. Mm. And, and, and whereas, there's nothing you can do to change their mind. No, and, and you get the very strong sense, and I've had friends who it's happened to, if you even respond at all, that there will ha- then be a whole bunch of people mm. pile in and go after you. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't see that I have any place in trying to change those people's minds, actually. I'm not trying to criticise everything that everybody else does. I'm doing my thing, and if people want to look at that and comment on that and um, get involved with that great one last question oh okay sorry squeeze it in squeeze it in what what's your favorite cup well oh god okay you can pick a top three that's tricky isn't it so um it depends obviously um i shoulder is it's funny isn't it so leg of pork used to be the thing the prize cut that everybody wanted to eat and then in trendy terms shoulders completely taken over now uh, to the extent that I never get any shoulder because everybody else wants the shoulder <laughs> um, because they want to do pulled pork and slow roasts and all that kind of thing so actually my favorite thing is a really slow roast piece of shoulder and with the free range rare breed type pork you've got a good fat percentage in it so you can shove it in the oven you can leave it there it's completely forgiving it's never going to dry out and then you've got loads of options with it I also really really like belly pork oh me too uh, yeah, belly pork is one of my my favourites too. Um, the other th- the other cut I really like, which is the less common one, is the hand of pork, which is the bit higher up than the shoulder. So it's it's got some characteristics of shoulder, um, but it's a kind of a big, ugly looking slab of meat. But that again is really brilliant as a slow roast or a braise and that mm. kind of thing. To find myself some hand of pork, I've yeah. not even heard of that. Martha, it's been amazing. Thank you so much for letting us visit your farm and meet the pigs. They clearly have a fantastic life here and I'm sure that's why the meat you produce is so popular and tasty. So hopefully we'll bump into you again next year. At yeah, come, for, and... come for your annual, annual pig fix. Yes. <laughs> you, you say that now and we will. As soon as we yeah. see on Twitter that more piglets are born, Harris will be like, pack your wellies, we're going to Wales. On a detour. <laughs> no, it's been fantastic. Thank you. No, um, lovely to have you here. And that's all we've got time for today. But if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and rate us five stars on iTunes so more people can find us. And perhaps you can spread the word using Twitter with hashtag at the source. And we'll be back with another food story soon. Until then, over and out.